The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm Presents Book Burners, Season 4, Episode 19. One. Sal and Grace fought through the flight, through landing, and through passport control in Alexandria. But Sal only knew to call it fighting by the texture of the silence. Her fights with previous friends of the boy and girl variety had been large, screaming, noticeable affairs. The kind where you wouldn't have had to work to find witnesses after the fact. Once, and only once, she'd lost control and dented a wall with her knuckles. And for the next two years, she'd lived in that apartment. She passed the dent, invisible to anyone else and glaringly obvious to her, and felt ashamed each time. Grace fighting looked the way Grace always looked. Reading a book, say, with the total grinding attention that let her flip pages every 30 seconds on the second, or watching the world pass from a cafe seat or stretching in the morning light that filtered through the smoky windows of their room. Grace did not glare or shy away. She displayed no stillness at a touch, nor was she less likely to return a kiss. But Grace moved at the bottom of an invisible ocean of silence. And while she did not act in any way Sal could identify as off or wrong, when Sal opened her mouth to speak or leaned in for a kiss, the weight of that invisible ocean crushed down. It was a subtle difference, not what Sal would have expected from what she had seen of Grace in battle. Sweeping, swift, violent. But that, Sal realized, was her mistake. Battle or not, Grace was always fighting. At this moment, she was fighting Sal. The rest of the team hurt, too. There was no time to heal after Rome, not with the Angstroms headed to Alexandria to make their move. So Manchu worked his rosary as if the passage of his fingers over beads might sand his soul smooth or rub away the blood there, invisible to anyone but him. So Asante sat stock still the whole flight from Rome, keeping her own counsel as always, only this time a counsel of war. So Liam, bone-tired, slept with his hands balled into fists. The archives had been invaded before, ransacked by demons, but this was worse. Cardinal Fox was dead. They all had different feelings for Fox, frustration, scorn, hatred, grudging, respect. But death had a way of turning those feelings around and nodding them to their opposites. You might think a fellow officer was scum, 
But then he died, and you met his son, who'd come back despite their long estrangement for the funeral, and that didn't make you like the officer or the way he acted on the beat or the kinds of arrests he'd made. But still, you had to watch his son cry. And you had to decide how that changed things, if it changed things. And Sal's brother was dying back in London. Not now, not soon, but the world was eating him. The flood of magic tugged at the stitches that held his soul together. And she wasn't by his side. And she couldn't help him. She was here, failing to stop the angstroms from making everything worse. Perry's sickness was the world's fault, and Fox's death was the angstroms. But what was wrong with Grace was Sal's fault, in part. And at least she could try to fix it. So when Sal and Grace watched the luggage while the others used the restrooms before customs, she steeled herself by looking everywhere but at Grace. Robed men and women in line, the drop ceiling, the grubby standard-issue airport tile. Then asked, what is it? Grace blinked, and in that instant, Sal understood the reason for her silence. She was trying to be kind. You like me too much. Whatever she'd feared, it wasn't that. What? Grace put down her book. This will be worse than Rome. There's no team one, no backup plan. We're all we've got. I know. That's why I'm trying to fix whatever this is between us. Grace sighed. You don't know. You're making the calls now, and that's good. You decide quickly, and you have good judgment. You managed to get Liam's head out of his ass. But if we're going to get through this, you need to use all your resources, including me. I'm not holding you back. You don't think you are. I didn't notice it before, Rome. There are orders you can't give me, ideas you can't suggest. Arturo never had that problem. I think the vows kept him on track. You're wrong. But she had her passport in her hand, and she was flipping through the blank pages, reading the vaguely patriotic quotes on each washed-out landscape page. She closed the passport, but still, she could not look at Grace directly. Grace took her wrist, her grip taut, not tight. Sal felt her own pulse beneath Grace's fingers. Sal, I want you to look at me and tell me that if you had to, you'd send me to my death. She laughed, once. She'd always had a bad habit of laughing at grim jokes and of hearing grim jokes when other people were being serious. All Grace's focus ground against Sal. Grace, Rome was a bad day and a bad week and a bad month and a bad year. We'll win this. Sal, I love you. But please, for once in your life, stop being so damn American and say it. Grace's eyes were large and dark and deadly earnest. I love you too. That's not what I meant. They were just words. And Grace was right. There were thousands, millions of lives at stake. The entire world. Of course she would send Grace to her death if she had to. She'd sacrifice herself if needed. You just didn't say that out loud. It was bad luck. Or maybe, like Grace said, it was that basic American oddity foreigners tended to confuse for optimism, but was more a kind of anti-fatalism. Not a belief that everything will work out, but a confidence that it probably won't, and you might as well grit your teeth and put your shoulder to the wheel anyway, because why not die trying? She would send Grace to her death. She would. 
And Grace needed to hear Sal say it, to know that she, Grace, hadn't compromised the team by letting this thing between her and Sal reach the point where it would sow doubts like this. The commander did what she had to do to keep the unit's trust. So why did her throat dry up when she wanted to speak? Liam, fresh from the restroom, slipped between them, reached for his shoulder bag, and dug out the phone he'd left charging on a battery pack there. Sorry, excuse me. Even when the world's ending, you gotta catch them all. Well, neither of them answered. See, this is why I try to sleep on planes. Flying's just a foul experience all around, and you feel foul after it. Best spare yourself the indignity. He rose onto his tiptoes and stretched toward the ceiling. His shoulders popped. Oh, so, hey, did anyone come up with a plan while I was in the loo? Sal tried to say, we'll talk about this later with her eyes and body language. But she'd always been better at reading body language than speaking it. All she got off Grace was a wave of disappointment, though that might have been Grace's normal facial expression. Same as before, we stop the angstroms before they get whatever it is they want. They crack the archives. Why should they have more trouble with the Library of Alexandria? Nobody has sacked the Vatican in about 1,400 years, Asante said, shouldering past Liam and reaching for her rolling bag. The library survived on more contested territory for twice as long. They've moved and hidden and moved and hidden, and each time they've made themselves more secure. Which is why we'll stop them here. Manchu emerged, still rubbing his hands. Besides, the Engstroms are a European family. They had time to study the Vatican. In Alexandria, their resources will be more limited. They were good points, Sal thought. Good reasons to think she might not have to make Grace's choice. She didn't like the relief she felt at that notion. It meant Grace was right to doubt her in the first place. The Library of Alexandria was well defended. They were both off their home soil, but the book burners were always off their home soil, which put the Engstroms at a disadvantage. Hell, if they were lucky, they might have even stolen a march and beat the Engstroms to Alexandria. Grace was just being a pessimist. They could handle this together. Nothing was quite as bad as it looked from the outside. She told herself that as they gathered their luggage and passed uneventfully enough through customs. She told herself that as Menchu spotted Yusef, the, or at least a, librarian of Alexandria, in the crowd and waved. She told herself and kept telling herself, right up until Yusef reached them in the crowd and said, They're here. You needn't act so surprised. Ingrid sat composed in a broad blue armchair, legs crossed to show off her Louboutins and the black leggings Sal would have bet were basically the same one she owned, only with a couple extra zeros on the price tag. She didn't want to speculate about the cost of that white cowl neck sweater let alone the diamonds. Ingrid had been smoking when they came in, though she crushed her cigarette out. Private jets clear customs faster. They come on board, check your passport, and wave you through. Practically civilized, or at least as civilized as air travel ever is. Please have a scone, they're divine, and a seat. When neither Sal nor Grace nor Liam moved, Gala, lounging on a sofa in a satin day dress, legs tucked under her, hair up, tea in hand, threw her head back and groaned. We said we wouldn't hurt you if you came to talk. It was all in the letter. I don't see why you must be so formal. We got your letter, 
Sal set the ransom note on the black table that stood in the center of the white-carpeted room, irrationally far from any chairs. The penthouse suite had been done up in bloodless mid-century modern, or else the twins redecorated when they moved in. Nice view. One wall of windows opened out and down on Alexandria, but the other opened on the mottled pink and shifting skies of deep magic. Floating mountains of translucent flesh rippled, merged, and drifted apart out there. Give us Yusuf's daughter back. This, Ingrid stabbed the air with one perfect fingernail, is why people hate civil servants. There's nothing civil in the service. It's all obligations and duties and must eyes. You're acting as if we kidnapped a girl for some nefarious purpose. She drew out nefarious. We knew there was no way you'd meet with us otherwise, and even so, you've only brought half the team. We'd so looked forward to a frank conversation with Father Manchu, or your archivist. I'm sure we could have sorted out our mutual misunderstandings. You're not getting all our team in one place, Sal said. You know that. Yala rolled her eyes again and slumped back into the sofa. Liam picked up a frosted scone off the tea tray and sniffed it, then made a not bad face and set it down. You murdered the maitress, and a whole boatload of other people. Not with our own hands, darling. Do you think that mattered? You invaded the Vatican and killed Cardinal Fox. You have a shit approach to starting frank conversations. Hostage first, Sal said. If you want to talk, we talk after. Ingrid drew into herself and took a slow breath, tensing for an argument. But before she could speak, Gala unfolded one of her long, lazy arms and snapped her fingers. A blue circle appeared around her hand and around a doorknob leading to one of the sweet bedrooms. The door popped open, and a girl, five or six, stepped out, knuckling her eyes as if she'd been asleep. Here, child, your father sent his work friends to pick you up. Isn't that nice? The girl staggered across the carpet, still half asleep. She shook her head and looked around herself as if seeing the place for the first time. When she saw the pink sky and the things that moved out there, she got very still, and her eyes widened in wonder or fear or both. Come on, Kasrin. Liam held out his left hand, like Yusuf had told him to. Your father said you would want to know he's cooking tonight. The girl's eyes narrowed on Liam and on his hand, and her memory locked in. She went to him and held his hand as they retreated to the door and the elevator beyond. Liam gave Sal a mock salute as he passed, which Sal returned with a nod. And then they were gone. Will neither of you try the scones? I suppose the help will eat them if we don't, but it's such a waste. Sal did not answer that. We gave you the girl, policewoman. Can we have a civil conversation now? You and your sisters are murderers, but you're not dumb. You know about the change that's coming. But you've killed and ruined lives and made magical bargains and spent more than most people could dream of to break every hope the world has of survival. And you want to chat? Ingrid's generous lips tightened. Gala stood, walked between Sal and Ingrid to the tea service, and refilled her cup from the samovar. I told you this was pointless. I told you they'd never understand. Gala took a sip of tea and glared at them over the rims of her glasses. We agree with you, policewoman. You and I don't agree on anything. Not on the particulars. Gala waved her hand between them. All that coming together, everyone will save the world stuff, that does not work. 
We're all out for ourselves, our families, our friends, our powers, even your main dress was. But you and we agree that things are changing and that what used to work won't anymore. Our family's just as blind as anyone. Mummy and Daddy and Aunt Thais and Farfar. They think the family will ride all this out just like we've ridden out the last thousand years or so. What they don't comprehend is that we have to strive as much as anyone now to make sure we'll be safe then. That, we can do. The save the whole world thing, we're pretty sure we can't. And no one can. So we convinced our family to let us take the logical steps. They still think we're mental. Especially after the trouble in Greece. But we're doing the best we can. Taking apart the airplane to build your parachute, Grace said. Very logical. Gala's smooth forehead furrowed. That doesn't make sense. The parts the airplane needs to work as an airplane wouldn't be of any use building a parachute. God, it's like talking to Pavel. She padded back to the couch and draped herself down on it. We're not cannibalizing the airplane to build a parachute. We're cannibalizing it to build another, smaller, better airplane. And the people who don't fit on your airplane? People. Do you actually really care about people, as a general group? The people in website comment sections? The ones who don't shower and build pyramids in the Louvre? Gala, Ingrid said gently. Fine, fine. You talk to them. Ingrid reached into her breast pocket and withdrew an envelope that would have looked white against any background save her skin. You have so many objections to our methods, of course, and they're very reasonable, I'm sure. If it matters at all, every casualty sustained so far, including the temporary capture of our dear brother, with a tone of voice on dear Sal recognized, the one that usually meant idiot, are the regrettable consequence of people not doing what they should. Which is? Why, Gala said, what we tell them to, of course. Ingrid crossed the carpet to Sal, envelope extended. We just want to borrow a few items from the library. Give them to us, and we won't kill you and your friends, and Yusuf and Kasrin, and all the other little people down there. You saw what happened in Rome. You know we can do it, and we will do it, and you can't stop us. But we'd rather not. Do you understand me, policewoman? Sal wanted to punch her. She took the envelope instead. Yes. Do you agree? All Sal's body thought no at once. What she said was, give us time. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. 
follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Two. It's all junk. Liam dumped the last box out onto the meeting table at the heart of the library of Alexandria. Books played face down, paper crimped, a scroll began to unroll. A wooden bowl rattled on the flat surface, and a rubber ball bounced. Asante caught the ball and held it to the light. The glitter inside the transparent rubber sparkled, pretty and cheap and totally mundane. Looks can be deceiving, Asante said, as we all know. They're just trying to waste our time, if you ask me. We're trying to waste theirs, Grace pointed out. It would be fair. But maybe they would expect us to think that way. We can't afford the risk that one of these items could be... Asante picked a very 1980s toy robot car off the table and turned it over in her hands, flipping the robot's head out of the car's engine compartment and back. More than meets the eye? Sal couldn't resist. For Perry's sake. Though thinking about her brother at all hurt. He was half a continent away, and Frances was taking care of him in her quiet, careful fashion. But that was supposed to be Sal's job. Not shuffling through underground archives trying to stop homicidal wizards from breaking the world even worse than it was already broken. What kind of monster was she to be here instead of by his side? Not as much of a monster as the world that made her choose. At least she could represent the dumb nerd jokes in his absence, even if Liam boggled. Asante blinked. I was going to say exceptional. We saw that with but she trailed off rather than saying the maitress's name. We've seen it before. Asante finished grim and set the robot car down. Sal closed the scroll. The library felt airy and light around them, especially considering that it was in fact a high security facility buried deep under Alexandria. The architects had done their best to mimic airy Mediterranean courtyards underground, using glowing alabaster panels, broad halls, high ceilings, and trailing vine work. The effects reminded Sal of one of those two cheery New York office buildings, the kind with in-house coffee shops and a Michelin star cafeteria and a music room and a masseur. All the amenities and comforts any employee could ever dream of. Why would you ever want to leave? Manchu led Yusuf into the office and Catherine trailed them both, holding paper and crayon. When they'd led the girl back to the library, Yusuf had held himself together, hugged her, said, I'm so glad to see you. 
Even Sal, who had only met the man once, could hear his voice cracking with relief. Menchu had taken him aside, slow and patient, as always, and talked to him. And Yusef looked almost whole now. Sal wondered how Menchu worked that particular magic. She watched the priest's face and hands, as always, for some sign he'd absorbed the panic into himself, that he'd taken on the doubts and fears of the man he'd gone to help. But if they were there, Sal was not enough of a detective to spot them. No success, Yusuf asked now, but more by way of confirmation. He could see the rummage sale on the table for himself. Catherine picked up the robot car, returned it over, set it aside, and began to color her paper green. Oh, that must be something. Grace picked up a copy of Our Bodies, Ourselves from the pile and turned it over in her hand. The more we focus on this, the longer they have to sneak into the library. If that is their aim, they will be disappointed. The library will protect us. Manchu looked uncertain. The Engstroms have immense resources and magic. I've seen the cost of underestimating them, old friend. I won't let you make the same mistake. Yusef took Manchu's hand from his arm, held it, and let it go slowly. Thank you. But only I understand the labyrinth of this library. Its traps, its magical protections, the secret paths in and out. If there is a safe place on the planet anymore, it is here. That is why I have brought Catherine. My predecessors built and rebuilt this place to survive Romans, Mongols, Turks, French, English, Germans, and the atomic bomb. I am more worried for my wife Amina's safety at her confidence in America than I am for my daughter's safety in the library. Liam looked skeptical. Don, you're the point of failure. If they get to you, they can use what you know to break this whole place open. Which is why I will not leave the library until the danger has passed. So you plan to wait out the siege? For how long? We have fresh water from a cave spring below and supplies to last months. If the Engstroms are as well-informed as you claim, they know this. They could wait us out if they had all of the time to do it, but they do not. They are exposed and likely desperate. Your Team One, not to mention their other enemies, will come for them once they have dealt with their distraction. If this is a feint, it has been miscalculated. Grace set the book down, spread both her arms, and swept a pile of bric-a-brac toward her. So this junk is the only clue we have to what the Swedes want. We might as well get searching. Ingrid hated waiting. She paced and turned on the bathroom tile and wanted another cigarette above all else. For a day, that was her rule. At mealtimes, before bed, and after sex, if warranted. And she would not allow the interminable mess Pobble had made of everything involving the book burners and the maitres and the library to break her routine. That was how people unraveled. Routines slipped innocently at first, and then more, and the next thing you knew, the whole precision instrument lay in pieces. The flickering blue candle flames and the whiff of smoke and Gala's thick incense did not help. It would have been so much less complicated, Ingrid said, if we just told them we'd kill the girl if they didn't give us what we want. They're so soft-hearted. Can you imagine the priest saying, no, kill her, we'll never let you into the library. Gala, seated and wearing her bathrobe in the center of the candle circle, leaned back and sighed. You're as bad as Pavel. 
Ingrid picked a velvet cushion off a stool and threw it at Gala. It bounced off the air above the candles. You were watching Brooks when she accepted the deal, Gala said. Did you think she meant to keep her word? Instead of answering, Ingrid sat on the lip of the large round tub and tested the temperature of the blood inside with her hand. It's almost ready. That's what I thought. So say we told her what we really want. She claims they need to talk it through with the librarian. They leave, and then they're in one of the most defensible points in Christendom while we're staying in a quite nice and, above all, exposed hotel room. And they have a Santi, however much of an amateur she may be in the mystic arts, and a young woman who can move a good deal faster than you or I can encant. Ingrid moved her hand in a circle, making whirlpools in the blood. She is beautiful, isn't she? If Pavel hadn't bungled her acquisition back at the last market, this would have been so much easier. If we'd known then half of what we know now, Gala said, sounding bored with this whole conversation, we would have made different choices, which would have had different results, and you'd be wasting just as much time fretting over what we could have done better. I don't fret. I love you, darling, but please, you'd win gold medals at the downhill fret. You've checked the temperature of that bath ten times in the last ten minutes. Brat. You must be the younger one, whatever mommy says. Ingrid drew her hand from the bath and watched the blood settle to stillness. No matter how much she'd seen and used, Ingrid always expected the stuff to behave like colored water and always felt surprised when it did not. There were fewer ripples, and the surface took light differently. She flicked her fingers and the blood rolled off them, tugged back to the pool by magic and affinity. It's ready. Yala stood and stepped from the candle ring. The blue light clung to her robe, then to her skin as she shrugged the robe off and let it cascade to the ground. She set her glasses beside the sink, fished her contact lenses from their case, cocked back her head and dropped the lenses in one by one. The blood waited. Lenses in place and naked. She stared down into the tub and shook herself as if preparing to dive into a glacial lake, though the blood was warm. This is the better way, Ingrid. They do what they please, and we take what we want. Ingrid hugged her around the shoulders and gave her a peck on the cheek. What would I do without you? Starve, most likely. Wait, she said before Gala could move. She ran to the cage on the vanity, reached through the bars, and tested the sleeping girl's pulse. Good, she's ready. Gala rolled her eyes and stepped down into the blood. Grace lay on the bed, and Sal sat down beside her. She let her weight settle. Never go to bed angry, that was the advice her father gave her back before it made any sense to give, and he must have got it from the same book as everyone else. But she was tired. And she hurt, and she wouldn't get to choose when the Swedes sprang whatever plan they'd laid. She felt so tired, and she wished she and Grace weren't doing this. It had been a mistake to try to have the conversation in the airport when they were exhausted and hurting and more scared than either of them would admit. And it was a mistake to have it now when they were even more tired after hours pouring over the Swedes' catalog of nonsense and comparing it to archaic ledgers Yusef dredged up from the library's deep stacks. Listing items of power prone to changing shape, books that hid like parasites and other books, 
and artifacts that disguise themselves as bottles, keys, toys, doorknobs. They should sleep. She should sleep. You never knew when you might have to fight. This wasn't the right time. But there would never be a right time, even if she spent years waiting. I would, she said. Grace's eyes opened. I would send you to your death, if I had to. But God, I hope I never have to. There are half a hundred reasons this thing you and I are doing would be wrong if we were in a normal unit. I should never have to choose between our job and your safety. And Grace, I wish you hadn't made a thing of this. My brother's dying, and I'm all the way over here in Egypt, and I know we might all die, me, you, any of us. And I'm trying, and I'm pissed at you for pushing me on this right now. But I would make the right decision. She needed Grace to believe that because she needed to believe it herself. Because otherwise, what the hell were they doing? What she had done with Liam years ago when they were all so much younger, that hadn't been like this. That was physical. If one of them died or both, hell, sure, why not? They pretended they didn't care, and they pretended so well, the pretense, more or less, came true. This was deeper, and that was a problem. Grace was staring up at her, dark, weighing, waiting. I'm sorry. She touched Sal on the hip, gentle, as if afraid Sal would slap her hand or throw her off. When Sal did not, her hand settled on her thigh. Thank you. Sal stared into the dark. Would you let me die if you had to, to do the job? You just answered that question. You'd give me an order, and I'd go when you ordered me. Sal turned to face her, and Grace's hand shifted, not just resting now, but gripping her leg, as if she were being dragged toward an unwanted future. But Grace kept her eyes fixed on the ceiling. You break so easily. Hey, I can take care of myself. I know you can. This isn't... And Grace fell silent and looked away. That didn't happen often. Grace always knew what to say, as if she'd planned the conversation in advance. You don't know how it felt in Poland when I realized you were back down in the mine. When I realized you might be gone. You didn't say anything. You were the one who'd almost died, Grace said. What was I supposed to say? I had to be there for you. I had to help. But it kept me up nights after. I can be faster than a bullet if I have to be. I can get better from anything. That's my curse. And when I'm not around, you're so stupid and so brave. Her eyes were wide and brimming and her breath was shallow. Sal took her hand. And took the naked fear in her voice and remembered how Menchu's face looked when he came back from telling Yusuf everything would be all right. She had never learned to take broken people in and make them whole. Maybe you never learned that trick, but you got better at faking. So fake it, Sal. She moved Grace's hand to her waist, to her hip, and dug her own fingers into her shoulder and kissed her deep and long. You think I'm brave? Grace blushed and glanced away, stupidly brave. I'll take it. And she reached down for her and down and let the fear go 
and cluster close around their bed with all the other shadows. Father Manchu fetched himself and Asante mugs of tea from the library's kitchen and bore both to the study through the gloom. The bright alabaster panels had reddened and faded with sunset, but there was light enough to walk, and table lamps in the study let them work. Asante thanked him for the tea without looking up from her magnifying glass and her Sumerian slab. He settled back down with the old paperbacks and picked up where he'd left off in the last one. They tried opening all the books the Angstroms wanted, but no magic poured forth. Perhaps, though, one book held a secret message, or a map folded and slid between pages, or something. Something, it turned out, was hard to find. But it kept him busy, and kept his eyes open. The pictures on the book covers, detectives in antique trench coats, Vikings with black swords and improbably large helmets, Swooning brides of various descriptions were vivid and garish and could not displace the other images he saw when he closed his eyes of the monsters and Fox's body, the Vatican shaking. He should have done something. There's nothing you could have done, he said out loud. Asante looked up over the rim of her glasses. I know. And nothing you could have done either, especially not in Rome. And even if there was something we could have done, we didn't. I don't see the point in regret. Steam rose off his tea and twisted in the air. The job didn't start like this. And we were younger. The, he stopped himself from saying kids. The others, they seem more ready for this. They think the same of us, of course, but you remember how it used to be. We'd go out, we'd learn something, and fight something else, and bring what was left back to study. But there is no back anymore, just forward. I'm not that old, but I feel too old to keep moving forward. You never stop moving forward, Arturo. Nobody ever does. Certainly not you. She smiled softly to herself in memory. You chanted with me in London. After all the stern talking to you gave me about Father Hunter's spellbook, about children playing with power tools, there you were, helping. I couldn't have done it without you, and without you, London would have fallen apart. That was a change I didn't think you could make, and it made me very happy. To be right? No. She flipped the tablet over and squinted at chicken-scratch cuneiform glyphs. Science isn't about being right. We question and change. The world questions and changes us. You've been changing with the rest. I worried that you might not see how much. I'm not so worried anymore. He laughed and was surprised to hear the gravel in his voice. I wish I knew what I was changing into. Asante stopped sifting through her clay tablets. We don't know, any of us. But we don't have to know. These people want to make everything worse to make their own lives easier. They hurt our friends and loved ones, and they want to hurt more. And we will stop them. He remembered how furious she'd been after the maitress died, how hungry for blood and how ready to kill. This was different. She was certain now, steady, implacable. 
She bent herself to her tablets and her work, and the silence passed again to him. Before he could find his way out of it, a scream split it open. High and warbling, it ended wetly and too soon. Manchu knew the screams of his comrades and colleagues well. That scream belonged to Yusef. He was up and running first, Asante close behind. The lights flickered as he ran from the meeting room and down and around the stairs to the dorms. Gears ground behind the walls and hydraulic pumps surged to life and somewhere a heavy gate slammed shut. He landed hard on his feet on the tile floor and a muscle, or worse, twinged in his foot, but in the rush he ignored it. He reached a closed door, judged it, and threw his whole body against the point he knew would make it give. Something else crinkled and tore in his shoulder this time, but wood splintered and he stumbled in. Yusef lay bent back over his desk and a small creature wearing Kesserin's dress crouched on top of him, its face a roiling mask of blood, its hands wrapped around his throat. Rivulets of blood ran up his jaw and cheeks, curled into his ears, slipped into his eyes. But he was still fighting. His fingers pierced the bloody face that was not Kesserin's at all. Menchu was a cautious man, but only by society standards. He launched himself at the homunculus in the shape of Yusef's daughter, grabbed it by the dress and threw it away from him. The monster hit the wall and stuck, crouched there as if upon a floor. Its arms spread twice as long as its body, its fingers longer still and sharp. It opened a mouth the size of its face, lined with curved, bloody icicle teeth. It still had Catherine's hair. With a high screech, the creature launched itself at him, faster than his eyes could follow, almost as fast as Grace. His hands were already up, so its arms struck his, and as he fell back, he clutched the monster's wrists. It pressed against his grip, and he felt himself start to fail. Its wrists hinged and melted. Long fingers bit into his arm, while others reached closer, closer toward his eye. That face mouth gnashed inches from his nose. Asante shouted a word, and the room's light changed. A pinkish-purple tint turned green. The creature's champing and clawing slowed, its impossible strength faded. Ice crystals formed on its skin. It had no eyes, but it seemed to look with its teeth for the source of this inconvenience. Then Grace kicked it in the face. Or she tried. It dodged. He could only tell what had happened by her surprised expression, standing half-dressed and hair-wild over him. But Asante kept chanting. Ice thickened the homunculus's limbs, and when Grace hit it next, it shattered. Crystals of frozen blood rained down, and he rolled over to spit them out before they could melt in his mouth. He shook with a chill he had not felt before. Arturo, Arturo, are you all right? Grace hugged him, pulled back, reviewed him. You should have waited for me. Someday, he said, I'll learn. And he accepted her hand up. He ignored his own injuries for now and prepared himself for Yusef, for what he'd need to be to help him, to assure him they'd get his daughter back. They'd seen things like this before. Such a perfect likeness was impossible to hold without a living form to draw upon. It would be all right. He'd been training to say that his whole life, and he'd used that training so many times. Even scared, shocked, bleeding, torn. But when he turned, he saw Yusef was in no shape to listen. Three. They carried Yusef to the meeting room and laid him on the table, which they swept free of junk. Sal cradled his head when she set him down and felt guilty again for having arrived so late. She had been asleep when Yusef screamed.
She'd heard him first in her dreams. One of the many advantages of Grace's curse was that she could put her pants on fast in an emergency. He's alive, Asante said, though she frowned when she took his pulse. Barely. No injuries, aside from the magic. We should get him to a doctor. Liam appeared at the door. No luck there. We're locked in tight. The elevator's down, and there are foot-thick metal plugs sealing the stairwell. Unless I miss my guess, we're not even getting outside air down here. Our man wasn't kidding about the security. Sal frowned. Why would Yusef lock us in? I don't think it was his idea. Asante tapped the black-red scab lines coiling into Yusef's ears and open eyes. Arturo, you said you saw this stuff come out of the homunculus? From his hands. Menchu hadn't taken his eyes off the librarian since they laid him down. Oh, there seems to be no structural damage to the eye itself. Asante pulled down Yusef's lower eyelid and Sal winced. She drew a tiny flashlight from her purse and peered into his ear. A trail of blood glittered on the earlobe. It's hard to tell without a scope, but I wouldn't be surprised if these, let us call them blood wires, coiled up the auditory and optic nerves into his brain. Mind magic is difficult without direct access to the brain. Whatever they were doing seems to have stopped or slowed. Perhaps once Grace broke their homunculus. The blood is wound through his mind. They made him close the library and lock us in. Probably they cannot force him to act without their homunculus, but can they still see into his mind? Have they found the information they wanted? What were they looking for? I don't know. But either way, we're trapped here. And you can't wake him up. Manchu sounded so grim. No, Asante said. I don't know this magic, and it's deep inside him now. Even if I did break it, it might scramble his brain on its way out. If you like, Manchu shook his head, leave him. But he looked up across the body to Sal, and Sal herself turned toward Liam, who was staring at Yusuf. Liam, who carried in his backpack his own gift from the maitress, her last sick joke. Liam had once been possessed. He has spent years breaking free of his demon and years after that putting pieces of himself back together. And the maitress had given him the power to peer into the minds of others, possessing them in a way. He could use his plant to go into Yusuf's mind and expose himself to the same power that held Yusuf in its grip. Sal watched him understand. His mouth and brow crumpled. And Sal realized that she had turned to wait for him to volunteer to save her from giving the order. And Grace, she realized, was watching her to see if she had lied. Would you send me to my death? She opened her mouth, but before she could speak, Liam said, I have an idea. You are listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Ever since that fantasy show which shall not be named but had a disappointing final season ended, I've been in a rut. I'm always looking for a good story about a young underdog with something to prove. So I have good news because in Born to the Blade, a new podcast from Realm, we don't just get one underdog, we get two. In Born to the Blade, 
Two young blade crafters eager to serve their respective countries vie for power and survival in a treacherous floating world on the brink of war. And when a rebellion leader known as the Golden Lord is beheaded, these warriors in training will do everything possible to ensure that riots don't lead to more bloodshed. Born to the Blade is airing now wherever you get your podcasts. So be sure to listen and subscribe or visit realm.fm for more information. Bookburners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. <laughs>